and uh, hope you've been blessed by the service this morning. Special welcome to our visitors. Uh, we pray you're blessed much by the service, but hopefully now by the message as well as we continue our look at the lives of Abraham and Lot. So if you have your Bibles, if you brought your Bible with you, then please turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. And that's the same passage that Brother Bryden read for us this morning, but we'll only go through seven verses this morning. So we'll just read from verses 1 to 7, just to remind ourselves of this passage. And um, yeah, an interest, uh, I found some interesting things in this particular passage. I thought it wasn't, you know, when you sort of go to a passage and you think, oh, it's not going to be nothing. Oh, this, this one found a few more things. So God's always got amazing stuff for us. Okay, Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, uh, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this precious time that we can look into your word. And we pray that your spirit would open up its truths to our eyes and that we would receive them within our hearts. And I pray that we would glorify them and use them to glorify you through our lives. So we just pray for your blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were to think back on your life, who were the people that most greatly influenced you? Who were the people that made a, such a difference in your life that the way you think today, the way you speak today, the way you behave today was influenced by them. Can you think of, can you think of anyone in particular? Does anyone stand out in your mind? Maybe there were a number of people who had a great influence on you growing up. Sometimes that influence can be good. Sometimes the influence can also be bad. Sometimes the influence of, that people have had on us over the past may be uh, causing us today to behave in ways that are not good. Um, we all influence each other, as I shared with you already. To a certain extent, we grow and adapt every day. Every conversation we have with each other, our minds and our hearts are actually adapting to what we are actually listening to. We tend to adapt to the way other people think. We mimic other people without even realizing it. Um, we grow in our knowledge through our interactions with each other. My prayer is that you are growing through what I'm speaking to you today. So imagine how many sermons you've heard in your lifetime. 
So the prayer is that the good influences in our lives are actually overcoming the bad influences in our lives. I am sure that in your life today, um, the way you behave, the way you think, has been influenced by people in the past who are probably not even here anymore. And that their influence is continuing to have an effect on your life without you probably realising it. Um, I, I owe my wonderful sense of humour probably to my grandfather. Yes, you can blame him for my sense of humour. My mum. My mum's got a bad sense of humour as well, yes, so she's probably partly to blame too. But there are things that we do, the way we behave, if you look at the way you behave, you'll probably find bits and pieces in other people that had an influence on you. And many of the things that we do have actually been carried on by what we've experienced in the past, what we've heard in the past and stuff like that. And sometimes the biggest influences in our lives come at particular crossroads. You know, when you ever been to that point in your life where you have to make a big decision, where you can either go one way or the other way. And there was someone there to actually counsel you or advise you or support you. And that person helped you to actually make that even for 20 years. And the question is, why would you move at that particular time? So it says in verse 1, you see, before I go into this, his relationship with Lot was deeper than we probably can understand. Lot, his nephew, came with him when he moved from Ur and stayed with him. And in a sense, he was probably like a son to him, the son that he had never had, even to this point. And so what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah probably affected him profoundly. And for those of you who heard the sermon last week, we understand what happened to Lot wasn't a pleasant thing. Even though he was saved from Sodom, it wasn't a pleasant thing. And so what we're going to see today is even though what we hear from Lot in the Old Testament, it's not the end of his influence on someone like Abraham even and What's beautiful is that the Lord is going to teach Abraham now, possibly in the middle of his anguish for his nephew, um, some important lessons in life. So look, turn with me to Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, and it says, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar, or Gerar. So one thing we know for a fact is that when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even though Abraham was living in Canaan and uh, Lot was living in Sodom, uh, that was a city of the plain, we know that Abraham saw the destruction. So turn, turn just back with me to verse 27 and 28 of chapter 19. And I just want to remind us of the fact that Abraham, from his own home, from his, his own land could see what had happened. And so in verse 27, it says, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. So I want you to 
bear this in mind. If you could, from your house, look at the, the neighbouring suburb to you, and every day you got up from your home and you were having your coffee at your back door, and you looked and saw the whole suburb burnt to a crisp. And you'd had friends there before. And you had loved ones that used to live there before. I wonder how it would affect you and I emotionally. And if you remember and you recall that when the Lord had come to visit him, notice how it says that he, uh, he, he went to the place where he stood before the Lord. If you remember that God himself had come in the form of a man and had 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 uh, was it lunch? he had lunch with him with two other angels and then he when god shared with him that he was going to destroy sodom because of its iniquity abraham had pleaded with god who do you think he was pleading for mostly who do you think was on his mind and in his heart that he's pleading so hard for god not to destroy sodom and he got down to 10 do you remember and he keeps on saying, oh, forgive me. I'm going to say it, ask again. Forgive me. I'm going to say it again. Please don't get upset. I'm going to ask it again. And he gets down to this point where he says, God, will you destroy it for 10 people? And God says, I won't destroy it for 10 people. So imagine the next day when he gets up in the morning and he sees the whole of the plain. The cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and all those other cities obliterated and the smoke rising up like a furnace. There weren't 10 people. There weren't 10 people in all those cities. And what had become of his nephew? Does he know? Did he, did he think possibly that because there were less than 10, maybe his own nephew had gone up in flames as well? Did he know that he'd been saved? We don't have that, that information here. We don't have it. So either he understood or thought to himself, my own nephew and his family have been destroyed in all of this destruction. Or maybe the Lord had told him, or maybe he had heard that Lot had been saved from Sodom, but can you imagine still his heart when he found out of what happened to Lot? That his wife had been burnt to a crisp. He'd lost his wife. He'd lost his sons-in-law. And then what happened after with his daughters? Either way, it must have been a very difficult thing for Abraham to digest. Now when you, when you think of it, and Abraham, we know Abraham loved the Lord. He loved him. He cherished him. His whole life revolved around following him and choosing to, you know, to obey at every point, even though it was hard. But now he's thinking to himself, the Lord that I love, the Lord that I cherish has, has destroyed the life, essentially, directly or indirectly, of my nephew, whom I also love. My nephew's lost his standing, his wealth, his property, his wife, his dignity, wonder what, what he would have thought. And Abraham wasn't the only one who struggled when God judged people. Jeremiah struggled tremendously when God was telling him, this is what's going to happen to your people. He's called the weeping prophet for a reason. 
the Apostle John. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 10, verse 10. The Apostle John is, a, is, a, is in a similar position. And we look, at, we look at Revelation and we think, wow, imagine the Apostle John, all the stuff that God showed him about the future. And we think, wouldn't we have loved to be in that position? To hear directly from God, to see visions of what was coming in the future and to know and to write down the end of the world stuff, right? But I'll tell you something. Uh, it's a bit like a double-edged sword. And Revelation 10.10 10 says, The angel warns him about taking this scroll and eating it, which means he's able to digest what it's actually telling him. It says, And I, I John, took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. There are some things in life you can look at and say, wow, amazing stuff, awesome. But then when you digest the ramifications of it, it can be pretty hard. You know, as believers, you know, we have this awesome hope to look forward to. We have a home in heaven. We have a relationship with God. It cannot be lost. And, and, and it's amazing what we have to look forward to. We have an eternity with God to look forward to. And I can't imagine. I can't, I can't fathom what we've got coming. But God has given us this wonderful description of it as well. The judgment, though, that will come upon the world will be horrific. And judgment that will come upon this world is not something for us to savour or relish. The eternal damnation of one's soul should break our hearts. Yes, the Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. The Lord is holy. The Lord is loving. But it doesn't also mean that we don't experience loss when we see people stepping into an eternity without him. On the contrary, it should motivate us more to share the gospel with them, more to live lives that are honoring to God in front of them because the time is short. And so either way, Abraham's in a situation where he every day from his, from his land, he's able to see the destruction of that, of that area to move away from the place that he lived for so long only after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and he moves south and dwells in a place between Kadesh and Shur a place called Gerar a region that came under the dominion of one king Abimelech the first time we hear of this particular fellow and verse 2 then says and Abraham said of Sarah his wife she is my sister and Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. So Abraham's moved his whole family, flocks, herds, servants. Remember, he had 300 plus servants. This wasn't an easy, uh, this wasn't just us picking up a home and moving, you know, with a, uh, with a truck to another place. He had to shift everything, the whole thing. So it would have come under the radar of that king when someone with so many assets and so many things actually had moved into his territory. And it looks as if there was some sort of interaction that had taken place here. 
And Abraham fell back on a common ploy that he had used to protect himself from godless people who were in the habit of killing the husband so they could get the wife. Funny thing is actually, it looks as if they honoured the marriage vow. Isn't that funny? Yeah? Till death to us part. They honoured that. They actually believed in that at this particular point, at this place. So how do you get around that? Well, you knock off one till death to your part. They're parted and now the wife's available. So Abraham thought, well, it's better for me to say that I'm not married. Say that she's my sister because that way they won't go to that particular direction. And maybe at that particular time, by the looks of it, um, when you were a king, it seems, you could have a number of wives. And if someone you like, you'd brought them into your, your castle or your whatever else you had there, and you could have multiple wives. And you, you know, I suppose from the, from the sense you're being looked after by the king, hey, it's not, not a bad place to be, right? The culture found it acceptable for a king to have multiple wives in those days. And the, the, a number of Israel. But for her part, Sarah played along with the whole thing. You see, they had actually come up with this ruse before they left her. When God had we called him, so we're talking like 25 years before, before they left her, they said, all right, if this happens, we're going to do this. So they prepared themselves and they were still playing the same particular thing. Okay, So even though what she said was sort of true, it was only partly true, because she was his half-sister, but sometimes when you leave out Another bit of information, it makes a world of difference, doesn't it? And this is the problem with half-truths. Because a truth that wraps up a lie, is that true now? It isn't true anymore. If you say a truth and leave out a bit of information, it still makes it a lie. If the other person is led to think, something different so abraham resorted to sharing half a truth in order to protect himself so from a worldly point of view it was probably genius eh? to to run with that sort of stuff but from the perspective of faith it actually showed a lack of faith at that particular point why because he desired to use a lie or to sin in order to manipulate a situation where he felt God couldn't completely control if he told the truth. Now, half-truths are a serious problem in this world. Um, not only because most lies are couched or embedded in, in the truth. Okay, They're the most dangerous ones. It, that makes them very hard to spot. When you mix up the, the, a lie with the truth, it's so much harder to actually spot the lie, isn't it? And the other danger we have is that we're also tempted to play the same games in our own lives because there is so much deception and lies being told out there and there's so much of this mixing going on that it's actually easier to play along with the whole thing too. That's why... If you were to ever go to a court of law, we have some lawyers over here. We won't, we won't point them out. 
But when you go to a court of law, they normally make you raise your right hand and you are told, and part of that says you will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So you've all, you all know that. And why? Why do they make you say that phrase or why is it such a common phrase? Because when a truth is not complete, it can be a lie. When the truth is mixed with a lie, it, the whole thing becomes a lie. And it becomes something the devil did so well. See, the devil does that thing like an expert. He knows how to hide a lie inside the truth so that people will just keep on swallowing it. And it's a bit like pointing a little bit of poison within something that looks good. So if I was to present you a birthday cake, all you sweet tooth people out there think, oh, that's lovely, and then mix up with a bit of arsenic in there, you may not pick it up, but you will suffer the results later on. And so the devil does that well. If you remember the first time we encounter the devil or Satan, he comes in the form of a serpent and he couches the lie, which is that if they ate the fruit, they would not die. Right? So he contradicts God, but that also they would be gods right? in and of themselves. And he couches that inside the truth. And the truth was that their eyes would be opened and that they would know good and evil. That was true. And so he gave them some truth but he told a lie inside that and either way the result was death and we're still suffering the consequences of it today much of what we see on youtube instagram facebook and so on in social media is often truth which contains lies lies that have been camouflaged enough for you not to notice and my warning to every one of us is to understand the devil finds it really hard to make you believe an outright lie. You're not that dumb, okay? You know enough of the word of God that you can actually spot the obvious lie. So what he has to do to deceive you is actually put a small lie in a larger truth. And that's what happens over and over and over again in social media. And I've seen particular clips and, uh, and, and, uh, and videos of people presenting the gospel and mixing it up with works, saying that you have to do this, this or this in order to be saved or stay saved, which is another one that they tell you you can lose your salvation, or telling you that, that you, know, you need to prepare yourself for the tribulation, so start getting yourself bunkered down huh? and make sure you've got stuff which is not biblical. Or they'll tell you that they know when Jesus is coming back. They've got the date worked out. And there are plenty more that you can probably think of that I don't have to share. See, the, the warning that we have in the scriptures is not to, be, not to be aware of the wolves, not to be afraid of the wolves, okay? Or to be wary of the wolves. Because you'll keep away from a wolf, won't you? It's to keep away from a wolf in sheep's clothing because a wolf is not going to come to you as a wolf he's going to come to you looking like he's telling you the truth he's going to come to you and the only way he's going to pull the wool over your eyes is to actually present himself as a sheep 
and it's harder to spot a sheep in wolf's clothing. And this is the other trick that you're going to see that he does very, very well, is that when the wolf dresses himself as a sheep, he'll mingle with the sheep and say that he's one of them. And then what he'll do, he'll say, look at the wolves out there. Beware of the wolves. Beware of other people who are actually trying to dress as sheep when he's dressed as a sheep himself. Why does he do that? Because he then deflects any attention away from himself. He'll get you looking out there, looking over there, looking all over the place, um, but he won't get you looking at him because he's pointing the finger at everyone else. And so beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, please. Beware of truths that contain even small lies. And please do not, before you forward information on to your friends, it may sound nice, it, whatever else it may do, please make sure you're not forwarding half-truths across to people. Because it then makes you culpable. It makes you the liar, the perpetrator. The other warning is to ourselves. The other warning is that these earthly and fleshly techniques that people use to manipulate situations is something that we've all done in our lives. And in most cases, we're probably not aware that we're even doing it, but be aware of the way you speak. Beware of how you respond to people. Listen to yourself, because it may be, and Abraham was in this mode, that he was happy to lie just to manipulate the situation so he could get around it. Be aware of what the words you speak, for every word is measured. You see, the majority of people in this world are constantly lying. Their whole lives are lies. Okay? And part of the problem is that not only are they lying to everyone else about who they really are and about what they believe, but they've actually lied to themselves most of their lives. And this is the, what the scriptures tell us. In 2 Timothy 3, it says that God hardened his heart, right? And some would, if you read that just like that, you think, oh, God made him worse. Now, God doesn't make anyone worse. God never makes anyone worse. God simply withdraws his hand of restriction from that person. And every time he withdrew, Pharaoh got harder. Okay, only because within himself that sin was already there. But have a look when a, a person rejects God, rejects uh, his conscience, what happens? Romans one twenty two. Now this is when people think they are smarter than God and reject the notion of God. It says professing themselves to be wise in Romans one twenty two, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. They began to worship everything else. Verse 24 says, notice this phrase, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 25 then says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
verse 26 and says, For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. This is, this is the, the point where they say, I choose to not believe in God at all. He doesn't exist. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And did you notice the phrase, gave them over? He's let them go. He's let them go to themselves. And when you become your own God, you are in a very terrible place. When God is not keeping some sort of a boundary in your life, when you say, I want nothing to do with you, he will let you go. But the result is devastating. God gives them over and they continue to do worse and worse and worse things. Um, and they, be, they continue to degrade themselves more and more. And look at the result of it at the end, verse 29 to 31. It says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Oh, that's, that's pretty common in our day disobedient to parents without understanding covenant breakers without natural affection implacable unmerciful now those things are common in our cultures they're common things we see in our world which means that the world has rejected the notion of god and god is actually handing them over to a reprobate mind now that is a scary thing when you think about it and that's the result of where Sodom and Gomorrah were at. They had, that was the culmination of God letting them go. And they got to the point where they were so evil, his hand of justice had to come down upon them. Because that, that's where it will inevitably go when he releases a whole city to a reprobate mind. Now, Abimelech is not in this place. For God saw that he had done that thing without an evil intent and from a place of innocence, insofar as an, innocent, as an unsaved person can be innocent. So God had mercy on him by restricting him from actually being able to sin against him. And God is able to do that. God sees the heart of all people and extends his hand to them. And it's always God who reaches out to mankind with mercy and grace and the question is how mankind responds to that reaching out how do we respond when god reaches out to us when god actually says to us don't do this well god is saying to us go and do this well god says to us don't think in that way well god says to us don't play around with that sin how do we respond do we respond as children, obedient children, or do we respond like the world? 
Because God is now about to tell Abimelech, an unsaved man, what he has to do. He's about to command him to obey him or there will be consequences. God brought him to a place of clarity and understanding. Do you remember the point that I made to you last week? That the angels took Lot, his two daughters and his wife by the hand. And did they lead them to the top of the mountain? No. They led them just outside the city. If they had stayed there at that point and God's wrath had come down, would they have lived or died? They would have died completely because they had to then make a decision to go to the mountain. And so God brings people to a point of clarity, to a point of understanding where he separates them from their distractions. Maybe you've been, maybe that's happened to you at one point. Maybe God separated you from your distractions and maybe it was not a pleasant experience. Or maybe it was a pleasant experience and God brought you to a point of clarity where you actually could see. And God does that. And he's done that now with Abimelech as well. He brings Abimelech and he gives him clarity and says, Abimelech, if you continue along this path, if you don't reverse course, you're a dead man. Okay, this is why. And he explains to him as well. Now Abimelech has a choice and God's going to command him. In verse 7, he now says, Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Abimelech had a choice to make before him. Life or death? Would he believe God or would he harden his heart against him as many kings had done throughout the ages when God gave them an ultimatum like Nebuchadnezzar ended up having to live seven years like a beast because God had to teach him a lesson or maybe like Pharaoh who refused to let God's people go or maybe Herod who thought it'd be a good idea to try and kill off the Messiah when he arrived because it threatened his rule or maybe Jezebel and other, other people who, whose power and might went to their heads. But the important lesson for us here is the verse that lies in the phrase, for he is a prophet and he shall pray for thee and thou shalt live. Now, why would God say that? I want you to think clearly about this. God still required Abraham to pray for Abimelech. What for? I mean, didn't God speak directly to, to, to Abimelech? Couldn't God have said, all right, now you're okay. Just just give her back and you'll be fine. No, he doesn't. He actually says, give her back and he's going to pray for you and then you're going to find life. Don't you find that interesting? That God had to insert Abraham in this thing. Why couldn't he have simply said, return your wife and everything's going to be okay? Because there was a lesson for Abraham as well. There was something that Abraham had to do. And when someone's taking your wife, there's something you have to do, and that is to forgive. That would have been a difficult thing to do. Abraham, in order for Abraham to pray for Abimelech, he had to forgive him first. See, how, hard, how easy it is to pray for someone that you, that you don't like or you hate or that you haven't forgiven? It's very hard. 
and this is the lesson for us that I'll be closing with, we can have a beneficial or detrimental effect on the lives of unbelievers by what we say, what we do, and how we pray. We can be a blessing to them or a curse to them by what we live, what words we speak, and what prayers we pray. We can be channels of blessing, like we sing, or we can be sources of destruction. You might think, that can't, that's, that can't be true. Yes, it is. It's actually very true. If we're not walking with the Lord, we can be sources of destruction for people around us, especially the unsaved. Why do I say this? Because through the actions of Abraham, Abimelech could have been destroyed, could he not? God clearly told Abimelech that Abraham would pray for him and that there would be a result, life. If we are the ones in this world whom we say are able to stand before the throne of God, are there other people in this world who can stand before the throne of God and him hear their prayers? Anyone else out there? Apart from the children of God? No. The scriptures teach very clearly that we are the only ones who can come before the throne of God and God hears us. So let me ask you a question. We can either pray for them to live, or what if we don't pray for them? And what if we don't forgive them? I'm sure you have people in your life who have done pretty nasty things to you. I'm sure there are people in your life, those maybe even closest to you, who have caused you a great deal of pain. The question I have for you this morning is, do you pray for them? Have you forgiven them? Because if you don't, it's held against them. God requires us to pray. God requires us to forgive. Abraham had to forgive and pray for Abimelech. And the question for us is whether we understand how significant our prayers are for the lives of those around us. We can hold their sins against them. And we can hold back our prayers for them. But what of mercy? What of grace? What of the value of their soul? We are then saying, if you choose not to pray for someone because you have something against them, what you're essentially saying is the value of their soul is only worthy of help. That becomes our judgment of them. So some of the most significant prayers and important prayers that you and I will ever pray are the hardest prayers to pray. And they're the ones that God listens to the most you see we pray a lot about a lot of things that are not that important and we often hold back from the really hard prayers because maybe it's too hard maybe i have to do the stuff that love asked me to do but it's just i'll hold off for another day i'll hold off for another week and all the while god's calling us to pray forgive show mercy Show grace. Be patient. 
Your flesh will always tell you not to pray. Your flesh will always push you to say, that person does not deserve it. But pray for the ones who don't deserve it. Because none of us deserved it. Don't follow the flesh. Follow the leading of the Spirit. That will be the hardest path to take. But I want to remind you as well, because you might say to yourself now, and you might be giving yourself an excuse, that God doesn't listen to your prayers as well as he hears Pastor Frank's prayers. Which is absolute nonsense. That's If you don't recognize that for the lie that it is, then... Um, you're not listening properly because the devil doesn't want you to pray because the moment we pray is the moment he begins to lose so pray and pray fervently and understand that even with our weaknesses even with our problems god glorifies himself through them turn to romans chapter 8 26 with me as we close with this passage and i'll leave you with this Before we read this passage, I want you to understand one thing that we know for sure. That even though Abraham made a mistake, even though he may have made the decision to go south because he was heartbroken for his nephew, even though he was using a, a, a thing which he actually was a sin, right? God was able to use that weakness and that error in his own life to bring knowledge to someone else. You see, Abimelech now knew that there's a God. He knew that this God could speak to people. He knew that this God knew his heart and, and was a righteous God. He didn't know that before. So God can take your weaknesses and my weaknesses and even turn those into good things. So let's close with this and I'll just leave with this passage. Romans 8.26 says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. For he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Make the difference with your life. Understand how important you are and keep your eyes focused. You're going to teach us how to learn more about you and open our hearts and our minds to know your will for us. Lord, as we are dispersed from this Church, I pray for your guidance and protection throughout the week and pray for that we will be a shining uh, vessel for your glory and honor. Lord, also would like to thank you for the food that uh, we are about to partake. Pray for your blessings upon them. Pray for those ones who prepared it. Again, we ask for your uh, guidance and protection upon us throughout this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're all dismissed. God bless you.